Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 15 reads, Now this is the commandment, the statutes, the rules, that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land in which you are to, which you are going over, to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son, and your son's son, by keeping all the statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that ye may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in the land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord or God, the Lord is one. You shall love your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I may command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk to them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes you shall write them on the door posts of your house and on your gates and when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and the houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by him, his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from the face of the earth. Let's pray. Uh, dear God, I just thank you so much uh, for each and every um, person that is here this morning. Um, I pray uh, for Derek as he uh, speaks to us, God, that you would prepare our hearts, um, and that more than anything, that you would be glorified this morning, that we would be thankful for you and for the sacrifice that your son has made, um, that we would be pointed to the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, <clears throat> as you may have noticed, I am not Kevin. Uh, Kevin texted me last night at 10 o'clock and was like, hey, are you awake? I was. I just finished watching Stargate. It's a great movie. Uh, Roland Emmerich is a fantastic director. I went back and looked at the list of things he's done. Priceless. Um, anyway, so I was awake, and uh, I was like, why, Kevin? And he says, well, I'm sick, and I'm probably not going to be there tomorrow, so would you mind preaching? To which I was like, well, I mean, okay. Um, <clears throat> so I'm here. Um, so be praying for Kevin uh, as he is sick, and especially be praying for Jackie. I mean, if you forget to pray for Kevin, that's fine, but don't forget to pray for Jackie, because if Kevin is anything like me and, uh, you know, the, the husband stereotype for a sick husband, um, we are miserable creatures. Um, so, sorry? He, and he's worse. So there you go. I'm hearing from his best friend for life, BFFL, that he is worse. So definitely be praying for Jackie. Uh, he's not feeling well. So, um... I didn't have time, obviously, to hammer out a brand new, fresh sermon. So if you've been here for a while, you're going to hear some familiar things. Raise your hand if you haven't been here uh, for longer than a couple of months. Okay, raise your hand if this is your first time. I'm so sorry. Um, okay, so... 
because the topic is politics. Um, yeah, okay. So um, let me explain to you why I asked uh, Ketty to read the passage of scripture that she read. Um, that passage, for those of you who don't know your Bible well or don't know your Old Testament very well, that is the beginning charge to Israel as Moses begins to give the law to the people of Israel. And so God sets up the law with that big long passage of remember this, remember I am sovereign, remember that I am the one who have put you here. You didn't earn this. I gave this to you because you were my people and so because you're my people you need to reflect me in your lives. You need to be different than the people around you. You need to um, to flourish not for the sake of Israel but for the sake of my name right? Um, and and the, the key verse, oh dear, my computer apparently is, mm-hmm. the, the key verse for us is uh, Deuteronomy 6.4. Can we throw that section of the scripture back up? Uh, huff? Maybe? Turn off energy shaver while you do that. All right, so um, verse 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Now, if, if I could pin um, the, the vision of Aletheia Gainesville on one verse in the scriptures, um, for me, it would be this verse. And, and if you've been in my community groups the last year, you've heard this over and over and over and over and over again. Um, and the idea behind this is that um, the Lord, our God, is one. He's not like the God of the Philistines who needs 50,000 helpers. That's a made-up number. Don't go fact-check me on WikiLeaks. I mean, Wikipedia. Um, uh, our God doesn't have partners, right? There, there isn't a sun God. There isn't a fertility God. There isn't a, a fields God or a rain God. We have Yahweh. We have one God. And under that one God comes all of our needs fulfilled, comes all of our, um, our, our, our prayers heard and, and answered. Um, and so that means for us as believers in 2016 that there is not an aspect of our lives that does not fall under the authority of God. Which p- fights against this idea that we have in culture that there's this sacred, secular divide that, that what you do on Sunday and when you're getting coffee with people from your ministry or, or you're like going out and sharing the gospel, like those times are when you're a Christian and you get to be active in your faith. But the other times when you're at work, when you're, uh, in our case for today, voting, um, that that's different. And so your, your faith can kind of stay over here in some aspects and, and the rest of your life comes up elsewhere, right? Um, I, the, the Bible rejects that completely. And so this passage that the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and all that you see there gets back to the idea of reminding ourselves of that. And so uh, as we look ahead, I don't know if you've heard, in a couple of weeks there's an election. Um, and I've been on social media, and I'm friends with some of you, and um, I, I know that there's a lot of anxiety. I know there's a lot of really strong opinions. Um, and so I, I want to take a moment <clears throat> to look at, at two main topic. So if you're new here and the idea of talking about politics in the pulpit is, is a little uncomfortable, give me the benefit of the doubt because what I'm not here to do is tell you how you're supposed to vote. That's not my job. Um, what I want to do is look at really two main topics within this. Um, so number one, um, whether or not Christians should be involved in politics. I, I mean that to, from everything from running to office to voting to, to campaigning to working for elected officials. Um, spoiler, the answer is yes. Um, and then what that involvement <clears throat> should look like. So let me clarify a couple of things as we get into this. Um, because I want us to be all to be on the same page. Um, this is a little, a little tricky, and so I don't want to lose anybody before I get started just because I'm not being very clear. So um, first and foremost, when I say church this morning, um, I am not referring to um, a local church, a specific local church. I'm referring to the global body of believers. So there's going to be some generalities made from that perspective. Um, the church as an institution serves the role of training and equipping believers to be disciples of Christ in all aspects of life, not to be their sample ballot. Right? So for, for those of you who are new to this, a sample ballot is a thing you get in the mail from a political party that says, oh, we noticed you're registered this way or we want you to be registered this way, and so here's how you need to check the ballot off, right? And what you're going to find is the Republicans will send you one that says, oh, vote all R's, and the Democrats are going to send you one that votes all D, or D's, and the liberal liber, or the libertarians are like, I mean, whatever, we're not going to tell you what to do. We're anarchists. Um, <laughs> sorry, that's about the most political humor I'm going to slip in there. Um, <clears throat> second, I'm not sharing 
my political opinions with you today. I have political opinions. My, my friends in this church know that I have political opinions. Um, but my job is not to tell you my opinion or anyone else's opinion of politics. Um, <clears throat> I'm doing my absolute best to keep this entire thing rooted in Scripture above all else. And so because of that, we're going to look briefly, don't like, faint from this. There's like 14 or 15 verses we're going to look at today, uh, passages of scripture in the Old Testament and the New Testament, because I want to make sure that I am communicating uh, just from biblical principles, right? Um, Sometimes what, and I think what we'll see, sometimes um, what the Bible has to say about issues or questions that we ask uh, might sometimes push back against our own um, deeply held beliefs, things that we were brought up in. Um, When I preached this sermon the first time, I shared that I I grew up in a very, very, very conservative household politically. Um, Like Rush Limbaugh all the time, listen through the static on AM radio, you turn it up really loud and you can barely hear what he's saying. Um, But that was what I listened to when I was in the car with my dad. And so um, I I know what it's like to be challenged from Scripture. So when when I sit up here and tell you that, I'm not saying that as one who has found all the answers. I'm saying that as somebody who has allowed the Bible to cut away at the, the um, long-held beliefs that I've had politically um, and seen it change my heart more and more and more to be like Christ. And so I would entreat you to do the same thing as we're, we're looking through this. Um, so if I say something you don't 100% agree with politically, um, maybe pump the brakes a bit before you come up to me after church and charge me with being uh, a, a scapegoat for you know, the left or the right. Um, so, let me skip some of this. Um, if you have questions after the sermon, I'd love to talk to you. Um, ask people who know me. I, I would love to talk to you about politics. Today's probably not going to be the day that I want to hang around and talk with you because I, I was up all night with this. So, um, forgive me if I just kind of like stare at your face politely and nod after the sermon. Um, and so then this final thought, and I'll, I'll get started, I promise. Um, this is really crucial to keep in mind. I am not preaching an exhaustive sermon on every aspect we should consider as Christians when we approach the political sphere. Um, that would take weeks of sermons, and while I'd love to do that uh, sometime, I can't do that in uh, just 45 minutes or maybe an hour. This is a pretty long sermon, I'm sorry. Um, so I'm trying to focus on what we can see in Scripture as biblical fact, and that's going to leave some of you feeling a little disgruntled um, or at least maybe feeling a little bit dissatisfied because maybe, maybe you're like me. You're looking at the, the polls, you're looking at the options on your ballot, and you're thinking, wow, really? Like, that's what I've got to work with. Um, And so you really want some sort of definitive, this is what you must do. You are not getting that from me today. Um, The truth is, and I'm going to be, I guess, jumping ahead of myself a little bit here, but um, politics is an open-handed issue. Okay? Um, Your vote can be foolish. Your political beliefs can be misinformed or misguided. You can make a bad decision. I've made some. But at the end of the day, none of it, everyone look at me, none of it, none of the things you do on November 8th, none of the boxes you check are going to wrestle away from you the assurance of your salvation in Christ. Jesus didn't die for you because you made perfect decisions in life or on your ballot. He died for you because you were hopelessly lost in a rut of sin and rebellion, and he lifted you out of slavery to sin so that he could call you his son or his daughter. So remember that as we talk. Remember that as you sort of wrestle, if you're like me, with a little bit of uncertainty, like, oh my gosh, this is going to happen, right? Um, So with that as our backdrop, let me pray, and we'll get started. Um, Father God, I thank you for, uh, for, for being our North Star. I thank you that, um, that you are the author of creation, that you have revealed yourselves, yourself to us, and that we are able to look at you and be challenged, be affirmed, um, and rest assured that um, the thing that is ultimate is not um, our career, is not our education, is not our politics, God, but is simply seeing and savoring Christ, to have a relationship with our Creator. And so I pray that, um, that that would be the foundation that runs through all of this sermon, that, that above all else, people would hear that, that, um, that we would cling to the promise of the gospel and not to anything else. Uh, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
All right, so first, should Christians be involved in politics? Emphatically, the answer is yes, right? Christians should be politically active. So I'll, I'll tell you what that should look like according to the Word of God in a moment, um, based on how I read it. But let me first build the case for why you should be politically active, all right? Um, we are to be lights in the world, and as, world, as, <clears throat> as the world operates— Sorry, we're to be lights in the world, right? And the world operates via political transaction in, in every aspect. I mean, I could, I could do an entire dissertation up here about um, workplace politics, career and education politics, all that kind of stuff. But the world operates through political transactions. And for our purposes this morning, I'm, I'm going to be discussing politics largely in terms of left versus right and apathy versus idolatry because that's the nature of politics in the United States. But understand that, as with most things in the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of man where they interact, um, there's a lot of nuance here that can't be expressed in a single Sunday morning sermon. It isn't, it isn't just left-right or idle apathy dichotomies that we face. Um, those just happen to be the usual issues that we struggle with as Christians in, in the, the political system of America. Um, <clears throat> the first thing we need to address is apathy versus idolatry. The left versus right conversation is really secondary to, to these immediate reactions. Um, politically idolatrous Christians believe that the herald of the second coming of Christ was Ronald Wilson Reagan. Um, or, on the other side, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, right? Um, like the two pillars of the left and the right. Um, for them, that's like the pinnacle, right? Um, they believe that voting for politicians and agendas is tantamount to preaching the gospel, at least as they've interpreted it to read. On the other hand, politically apathetic Christians tend to be cynical or distrusting of politics in general. They see politics as uninteresting, as unimportant, and unnecessary. And if they vote, um, they're, they're writing in Jesus Christ, who, by the way, is not approved as a writing candidate in Florida, so please don't do that. That would be genuinely wasting your vote. Um, and they refer to themselves not as Republicans or Democrats, but as monarchists. Um, so let me say up front that both— both are unequivocally wrong. Um, so let's get rid of those two choices right out the gate. Politics is not your everything, and politics is not something you should flee from as though it was the plague from a spiritual perspective. So from what I see in scriptures, the gospel is first and foremost about changing hearts and minds, but not only about changing hearts and minds. Let me repeat that. The gospel is first and foremost about changing hearts and minds, but it is not solely about changing hearts and minds. Turn with me first to Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Um, the heading in your Bible most likely says something along the lines of the preeminence of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. We're talking about Jesus, right? Um, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Excuse me. <clears throat> all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things are. Hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. So I want to speak speak first to those of you who would call yourself Christians and yet be apathetic towards politics. Paul is telling us here that it is by the hand and will of God that political institutions exist. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. That's a wide-ranging set of institutions. That's political office, political boundaries, politicians, and their agents. 
Let me say that again. It was God who created political office, political boundaries, political office holders, and political agents. And so agents here would include agencies of government, such as Congress or the IRS. Um, So none of you, no one's going to blame you, certainly not me, for um, feeling a little bit apathetic when that's what you've got to work with, right? If God created something, though, if God created something, can we let ourselves be apathetic towards its existence? If God made it, can we look at it and be like, eh, yeah, but I don't really care, right? Um, <clears throat> absolutely not. If God sees fit to reconcile all things through Christ just as he first created them, then the church has a responsibility to value all aspects of creation, visible and invisible, and work to see them redeemed by the glory of God. There's a perfectly logical explanation for most Christians who find themselves apathetic towards politics and government, right? Um, They're disappointing institutions led by disappointing people. And because of this, government agencies can be frustrating to deal with at best and at worst make us feel completely powerless and overwhelmed. I get it. I, I do. But the answer for Christians is not to turn off the news and give up. The answer is instead to lean in Reconciliation is a messy, messy process. There are no quick solutions. It's uncomfortable, but here Paul is telling us that God wants us, or sorry, God wants to reconcile all things through Christ, to Christ, through Christ. How can that be possible if the personification of Christ on earth, his hands, his feet, his body, check out? If there's a thing for us to be involved in as believers, we should be involved in it. I can't tell you how many people have, uh, that I've gotten to know since we've been um, down here with this church who have come up to me and I'm like, hey, what do you, what do you want to do with your life? And I'm like, oh man, I just I want to be involved in ministry. I don't know what I want to do yet, but I just, I want to, I want to preach or I want to lead a children's ministry or I want to, I want to work at a church. I want to be this. I want to, like it's all about ministry and that's great. If you have been called into a life of service to the gospel as a minister in some capacity, that is phenomenal. I am not discouraging it at all. But I very rarely have people come up to me and be like, I want to be a lawyer. And I want to redeem the practice of law for the gospel. I want to be um, a, a, a doctor because of X, Y, like because God created the body and he healed it. Like we, we, don't, we don't think about that a lot. We don't think about Christians in the workplace in the same way we think about Christians in a ministry field. Did you know that slavery in the United Kingdom was abolished thanks in large part to a man by the name of William Wilberforce? He was a politician in Victorian England who led a 20-year campaign to end slavery. So when I say reconciliation can be messy and arduous, I mean it. 20 years. And you better believe that wasn't a popular opinion to hold Uh, when he first started, and probably not when he finally finished, right? Um, But finally, he was able to work to pass the Slavery Abolition Act of 1833 because he, not, not because he thought it was a good political move, not because he thought it would help with his reelection or that it would make him rich, but because as a believer in the gospel, as a man who was saved by grace through Christ, he could not sit back when something could be done to end such a despicable practice of trading human beings like they were livestock. What would happen if William Wilberforce was like, oh man, I've been saved, I'm just going to go preach the gospel. Uh, Politics, well, I mean, I'll get involved in it later, but really I want to focus on the gospel and not understanding that there is no distinction between sacred and secular. Probably would have looked a lot more like slavery in the United States because the church sort of took a back seat rather than stepping up and saying, no, absolutely not. On the other hand, if you're already with me and engaged in the political arena in some way, be careful not to flip too far in the opposite direction. Yeah, the church should be involved in politics and government, but we have to be careful not to lose sight of the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is not to get a candidate elected or an agenda passed. Christ 
is preeminent above all things. It is through him all things are reconciled and nothing else. We are to reflect God's glory and excellence, not that of any other thing. Where politics is concerned, the church has struggled to understand this reality, right? So here's an example of what I mean. The understanding that, um, that the gospel is preeminent and it's not about candidates and agendas. Um, and here's where, I, here's where I may start to lose some of you, um, either because you really disagree with me or because you have no idea what I'm talking about. But just try to give me the benefit of the doubt. Um, so here's an example of what I mean. Uh, have you heard, raise your hand if you've heard of Jerry Falwell or the moral majority? Not that many more than when I preached this the first time. That's encouraging. Okay, so um, if you don't have your hand up, right, so... Um, let me sort of fill you in. Jerry Falwell in the 80s, and, and I, I, I want to give him the benefit of the doubt because it was an um, interesting political time, um, began a movement called the Moral Majority that worked to align Christians with the political right. Okay? Um, for, a, for a number of very good reasons, right? Um, chief among them being abortion. Right? We, we should all care to see abortion ended. Um, and so I don't want to completely throw uh, Reverend Falwell under the bus, but um, what happened beyond that movement is that I know more people who would say that if you're a Christian, you have to be Republican. You have to be. Right? In fact, I remember when I worked in politics in Virginia, um, there, I went to a very small Southern Baptist church, uh, you know, the kind where you like dress up and you have your family's seats and that's where you sit and like grandma's purse and her scarf and her brooch and her cousin's purse and it's like all through the row so nobody sits down with you, right? That's, that's my church background. Um, there was a couple in that church, an older couple, um, that I saw one time at a rally for a Democratic candidate for office. And I saw them give a, a monetary donation to that candidate. And I remember walking away from that place going, oh my God, they're not Christians. Oh my God, they're not Christians. How do I tell, like, these, these people are like really involved in our church. I gotta tell my dad, he's an elder in the church. Like, what do I do? Like, that's what I walked away thinking. <laughs> because I grew up thinking that if you were a Republican, that meant you were a Christian. And if you weren't a Republican, then were you, do you really know God, bro? Right? Um, uh, and so since then, like I said, there, there's been a very close tie between the, the right and Christianity. But let me throw this out to you. If you're sort of leaning more that direction, okay? And I can understand if you're more comfortable as a Christian calling yourself a Republican. If you're registered that way, that's fine. I'm not saying don't. But here's the problem. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the scripture from Genesis to Revelation is truth in and of itself. There is no truth like it. There is no philosophy or ideology with which it fully and completely agrees because it is not from the mind of men. It isn't. Okay? Um, we didn't sit down and be like, oh, what would be a really great way to salvation? I know. Jesus. If it was up to us, we'd be like, oh, well, we'll just earn our way there, right? That's what we would have come up with. Um, but that's not how it is. We can't raise up some man-made political party or agenda to be on par with the gospel. Before he ascended, Jesus didn't say, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of Lincoln and Teddy Roosevelt and Barry Goldwater, teaching them to observe all the ways that Ronald Reagan commanded you, and behold, vote Republican until the end of the age. That's not in there, I'm pretty sure. Unless you've got a really wild translation. <laughs> A.K.A. wrong. Um, God makes it very, very clear that hit, through his word that his kingdom is drastically different than any other kingdom on the planet. Guys, the gospel is our message, not a candidate, not an agenda. Jesus is our identity, not a party affiliation. And if it sounds like I'm throwing Republicans under the bus, please don't hear me as saying that, because the same is absolutely true for uh, Christians who call themselves uh, Democrats who say, well, you know, this is just the way it has to be. 
Jesus loved everybody. Jesus wanted us to take care of the poor. Jesus, like, you have to be a Democrat. Right? It's, it's just the, it's the same on either side. It's just more prevalent on one than the other. So I'm not, I'm not throwing one under for the sake of another. Don't, don't hear me saying that. Nothing frustrates me more than a well-meaning brother or sister who wants to argue that the church should walk lockstep towards voting in a certain way. Our mission is not to vote Republican, nor is it to vote Democrat. See, the, the problem with this mentality that, that Christianity equals Republican or Democrat equals liberal or conservative or progressive is a fatally flawed worldview from the beginning. And if, you were, if you've been with us for a little bit, you know that I'm kind of big on worldview. It's, it's how, as it says, it's how we view the world. There are certain um, ideologies, there are certain proclivities that undergird the way we make our decisions. Whether you know it or not, you have a worldview that informs your decision. And, and it's a flawed worldview that says it must be this or it must be this. It's a worldview that falsely places hope in law, though you, you might not think of it that way. Whether you're saying that Christianity bends left or right, what you're really saying is that if we just elect the right people and pass the right policies, then our problems will be solved. Right? That's what you're really saying when you say to me that I have to be a Democrat or I have to be a Republican in order to be a good Christian. All right? um, how is it that laws can save our nation when it was grace that saved us. You forget that, right? I remember a conversation that I had um, with someone uh, years ago. They, you remember when, uh, when Chick-fil-A was like, yeah, we're, we're sort of for traditional marriage, and the left was like, no, boycott. And then the, the conservatives were like, oh, well, we'll go to Chick-fil-A on Thursday. We'll get chicken sandwiches to show that we support traditional marriage. So I'm with this person who I love very much, and, and they looked at me and they said, hey, did you buy your chicken sandwich on Thursday? And I was like, no, I actually avoided chicken sa- to Chick-fil-A. I went to McDonald's that day, which I kind of did on purpose. Um, he's like, oh, well, what about traditional marriage? I said, oh, what about preaching the gospel? When was the last time you did that? But you'll stand in line for a chicken sandwich? <laughs> silence the rest of the car wet. Um, like the kind of angry stewing silence that I kind of crossed the line. Uh, Bear with me just a second, but let's look at a short passage to try and, and, and flesh this out. So let's, let's look at Galatians 1, 6 through 10. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a Christ. So Paul is arguing against the specific form of gospel that had entered, a specific form of false gospel that had entered the church in Galatia, right? So here specifically, Paul is arguing against legalism from the Judaizers who were saying, yes, it's all fine and good that you are saved by Christ, but now let's talk about circumcision. I'm like, well, hold on, right? Um, And gets Paul really worked up, clearly. Um, A false gospel, right? So probably doesn't seem very obvious the connection I'm trying to make, so let me be a little more explicit. A false gospel claims to be the real ultimate salvation. Yes, Christ, but in politics today, the false gospel I hear a lot is that conservative or progressive values are perfect analogs of the gospel. That's foolishness. As our hearts and minds are renewed by the reading of God's word and the work of the spirit in us and through us, we should find that some of our conservative ideas become a little bit more liberal and some of our liberal ideas, our progressive ideas, become a little bit more conservative because the gospel gives us a new perspective. As it renews our mind, as it renews our hearts, as it restores our lives, we gain a new perspective because things no longer revolve around the same things as before. It revolves around Christ. You, you can't put new wine in an old wineskin or both the contents and the container are lost, right? 
So you don't become a Christian as a Republican and be like, oh, I just shove it all in there, and it'll make sense. Or as a Democrat, you become a Christian, you're like, I just shove it all in there, and then that's going to, it's both going to, like, you're going to find yourself being intellectually dishonest with yourself and with others, cheapening the gospel because you are just determined to hold on to the former gospel that dictated your actions, dictated your decisions. I'm not saying that you can't call yourself a Republican or a Democrat. I'm saying that you can't hang your hopes on that label. Your hope hung on a cross and died, right? Donald Trump didn't die for your sins. Hillary Clinton didn't die for your sins. Oh, he said their names. Okay, but I'm not going to say it again. As the roots of Christ dig deeper and deeper into our hearts, the gospel becomes more and more central to our worldview. It should become harder and harder to raise anything else above the level of gospel significance. You shouldn't be doggedly saying, oh yeah, this is how it works. You should be saying openly and honestly, I I don't know. I, I don't see how to reconcile these things. But thank speed to God that he saved me even though I don't understand this stuff, right? You see, if God is seeking to reconcile all things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, to himself through the gospel of Jesus Christ, how in the world can we equate anything to the salvation offered in Jesus? There's no political agenda or candidate, no office who can redeem creation. That's the role of Jesus and only Jesus, because through him all things are to be reconciled through God. He is preeminent, not a politician. He is the answer, not a policy. So if you nod your head in agreement with me when I say that believers should be politically active, I pray that you would also nod your head with me when I say that our activities should not be motivated by anything other than Christ. If then, right, so we're wrapping up. If then, Christians should be motivated by our love for Jesus and his creation to see politics reconciled, how do we do that? I'm glad you asked. There are a few ways we can accomplish this, I think, right? And so remember, this is not exhaustive, but I'm going to give you my three thoughts from what I see in Scripture. Um, You can add to this. You can say that, whatever, I don't even do that. Um, But let me give you those three ideas. First, we have to be respectful. Second, we must reject the notion that the gospel compels us to choose a side of the political aisle. And lastly, we must pray for our leaders. So first, be respectful. Second, reject the notion the gospel compels us left or right. And lastly, pray. Um, so here we go. So first, be respectful. First Peter 2, 13 through 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. So think about our our current political landscape. Um, It's not much different uh, now... (laughs) than it was in the days of the early church, although admittedly the early church saw much more stabbings, um, politically motivated stabbings. A tu brute. Thank you all two people who got that. Um, the, the message today is the same. Be different. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. That's the church, right? Not a fraternity. That's the church. Um, fear God and respect the government. If everyone in the church did that today, how different would the political conversation be that you see on Facebook, that you see on the Twitter sphere? Do you do politics on Snapchat? I don't know on Snapchat. Probably different. Um, It'd be changed a lot. It's hard to be angry and disrespectful of those with whom we disagree when we realize that the real solution is Jesus and that he's in charge of changing the hearts that will in turn change the minds. If God's the ultimate authority and not partisan politics, then it's easy to be respectful of those with whom we disagree. 
It's easy for us as believers to wade into the political deep end and not lose our gospel arm floaties when we can remember the preeminence of Christ. Because we are here to be different. Do good and silence foolish people. We're participating not for the immediate realization, so we're participating in in politics, not for the immediate realization of regime change, but rather the long-term goal of restoration before God for all people. Think about everyone running for office, right? I mean, they they want immediate change. There is no like, hey, if you can just give me, like I know that the term is four years, it might take eight, but here's how, like it's like, no, get me in there, I'm going to fix it. I will fix everything if you vote for me. I will not fix everything. Don't vote for me. But it's a story. So um, they, they want immediate change. They want new leadership, new policies, new allegiances. We're made to think that things are so bad that we need a revolution. And yeah, sure, things are bad for one reason or another. If you are a believer in Christ today, if you have read your Bible, you cannot be surprised by the depravity that you see in whatever sphere. Right? Our revolution isn't a new leader. We know we need change. But what would possess us to think that we need politicians to tell us that creation, including society, has been marred by sin? We also ought to know what makes that change possible. We know the solution is Jesus, not Hillary Clinton. Right? It's Jesus, not Donald Trump. It's Jesus, not Rod Smith. It's Jesus, not Marco Rubio. Right? How we conduct ourselves in political discourse must make us stand out. If the salt has lost its saltiness, who needs salt? It must, as Peter say, put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Skeptics say that politics and religion make great bedfellows because in the end it's all about trying to create as much power and control for yourself or for your group, right? Uh, I don't know how many times I've heard that. Oh, it's just, a, it's just for control of people. Man, that's all it is, right? Um, but nothing could be farther for the truth. The, the Bible responds to that by saying, no, we're not after power. Peter didn't say there, honor the emperor unless he does something you don't like, and then vehemently oppose him and everything he does for the rest of his life. I don't need the government to pass legislation in order for me to worship God better or more fully, but I need it to be stable government, right? I need government to be stable in order that my family, friends, and nation are safe and stable. Understanding how we should approach the conversation will take us a long way, but not all the way. So here's the second idea. We must understand that we are not compelled by the gospel to choose a side of the political aisle. I don't know why I looked up there. I don't mean that there are not gospel-informed positions that we should take. Okay? Abortion is wrong. That's not my political or moral stance. That's based on the fact that the Bible says life is sacred because life is made in the image of God and life begins at conception. What I do mean is that God doesn't say thou shalt be a Democrat any more than he says thou shalt be a Republican. If it seems like I'm repeating that a lot today, it's on purpose, I know I am. So you should be listening to that. That's important to get out of the way first because if we don't, it's easy to question the genuineness of another believer's faith, right? Like me walking away from that uh, political event going, oh my God, they touched the Democrat. We got to put them outside the city for seven days. (laughs) Old Testament law. Um, So... Your, your politics, like, we, I've heard this a lot, right? Like, people will say, oh, man, I don't know how anybody could be like them. That is nothing more than a dog whistle that says, are, are you really a Christian? Are you, are you really saved? Based not on the fruit of the Spirit and whether or not we see that, but based on our political decisions. How foolish is that? Let's look at Matthew 22, starting in verse 15. Now, um... This is one of my favorite passages of scripture for um, looking at how we ought to engage politics. Tim Keller did an amazing sermon on this. Um, and if, if I had my way, I would have ripped all of that and just done that. But I didn't. I refrained. Um, but I would encourage you to go and listen to his full thing on iTunes. Um, so let me just give you kind of an overview. Um, 
Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. Again, that's Jesus we're looking at. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, so this, the Herodians and the Pharisees, this is left and right coming together for a common cause, right? Um, How beautiful. Saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So um, let me give you some context here. First and foremost, while this does apply to the question of should we pay taxes at all, the answer is yes. Um, The specific thing they're asking is should we pay the head tax? Which is a really controversial issue um, in, in this day and age for Israelites. Because the head tax had caused a revolt not 30 years before this question was asked. A violent rebellion that was squashed violently, right? Rome didn't mess around. If you got out of line, they didn't just like put you in jail. They destroyed you and your entire movement if you threatened the empire. And so this guy uh, named Judas the Galilean led this revolt against Rome because he didn't want to pay the head tax. He didn't want to pay the head tax because in their minds, that was giving more honor to the emperor than was necessary because the head tax is something you paid just for existing, And so because the emperor allowed you the pleasure of life, you paid him money. So really what they're trying to do here when it says trap them in their words, they're trying to see, is Jesus just another Judas, the Galilean? Is he going to lead a violent revolt or is he going to be a pushover and we don't have to worry about him, right? So either the Romans are going to squash him or we don't have to worry about him, right? That's what they're trying to do here. Picking up in verse 18. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. So the the price of the tax was one denarius. So he gets that one coin. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? Like, I just imagine Jesus asking, like, I just don't have time for this. Like, I'm in the middle of something. Who who, who is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. In Luke 20, 26, Luke records that actually he silenced the Pharisees. Like they weren't just marveled. They were like, right? Clearly, if Jesus' detractors were left silent as his response, he didn't fall victim to their trap, right? He didn't advocate for full-on rebellion. He didn't advocate for, yeah, whatever, just pay it. It's not that big of a deal. So when they asked Jesus how to handle the issue of the tax, the word they used really means honor. Should we pay the tax? Should we honor Caesar by giving him this tax? But Jesus does a really little sly thing. When, when he says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, he doesn't say honor. He says render, and, and that word in the Greek means give him what is owed. And also give to God the things that are owed. So Caesar's image is on the tax, is on the coin, I mean, right? So it's minted from Caesar's wealth. It carries his image, and if he says to you, empty your pockets right now, give it to me, then Jesus says, do it. It's his wealth. It's his image. But when he says, render to God the things that are God's, whose image do you carry? God's. So you honor the emperor, but you don't worship the emperor. You pay his tax, but you know your life comes from somewhere else. Your, your life belongs to someone else, and that is God, right? Um, the problem we run into here is that this practical way you can see that there isn't a perfect unity between party affiliation and the gospel is the issues themselves. So the issue here is the tax. Do we honor Caesar? Do we not honor Caesar? And Jesus is like, no, 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 you don't get it. You, you can't just give a straight yes or no to this. There's a, there's a different answer to be given through the gospel. So let me use some modern issues to, to flesh this out. As a general rule, conservatives have to be almost as pro-life as they are pro-guns. Right? So, um, and there's nothing wrong with guns, don't get me wrong. Um, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Whatever, just forget that. Um, so you've got to be really pro-life if you're going to be conservative. And most Christians would say they are 
pro-life, therefore they are Republican, because that's going to be their top issue. And hear me, I respect you if, if you're a single-issue voter and life is your single issue. I, I get it, okay? But if you think that economic inequality or social justice is the single greatest threat facing our nation, then you're more likely to be a Democrat, right? You're more likely to be a liberal. But what does God think about those issues? Because I think we would agree if, if, I, if I vote for one party over the other, I'm, I'm losing some on one of those issues while gaining another and vice versa, right? There's, there's no perfect fit, right? You can't get both. So let's take abortion first. This, is one's, this one's pretty easy. Throw Jeremiah 1.5 and Genesis 9.6 on screen, please. So in Jeremiah, we see, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nation. So to Jeremiah, he says, I knew you in the womb, before the womb. You were known by God, right? Um, in Psalms, we would see that he says, the, the psalmist says that I, I knit you together in the womb. In Genesis, that's the wrong verse. Nine six, not six nine. We'll give it a minute. It's up there. We'll come back to that. Um, it's probably not even that big of a deal. So anyway, God believes in life. Okay, so uh, moving on. Let's consider economic. And there it is. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed for God made man in his own image. Like I said, humanity is crafted in the image of God. So if God recognizes life in the womb, that life carries his image. And so because of that, it carries an inherent value. Okay? So next, let's consider economic inequality. Look at Leviticus 25, 35 through 38. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner. Uh, note there, God is also saying, not only are you going to take care of your brother who becomes poor, but if it's a stranger or somebody wandering through your camp, through your city, and he shall live with you, take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God, that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him money at any interest, nor give him any food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you to the land of Canaan and to be your God. So in case you need any motivation there, I'm God. And I'm telling you to do this, right? Um, next, Psalm 12, 5 and Isaiah 25, 4. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. And in Isaiah, for you have been of God, Isaiah says, for you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall. The, the compassion that God has for the poor should give you chills. To know that, and I'm getting so off topic here, but to, to know that he looks at you the same way. He is saying we ought to look at those in need. And he has been our protector. He will arise. The, the plundering of the poor causes him to be angry and act on their behalf. He has been a stronghold for them, protected them. God clearly has a place in his metaphysical heart for the poor among us. Elsewhere in the law, God makes explicit provisions for the poor by mandating field owners to leave the edges and the corners unharvested and forbade them from picking up grains that dropped out of their collected bundles so they could be picked up by the poor and the needy. So there was no second harvest. There was first harvest, and second harvest went to people who needed it. If you think welfare is a terrible idea... It has to make you just a little bit uncomfortable that God wrote it into his law. Now I'll ask you, which of these does God care for the most? Abortion? Or social justice? So I'm going to let Isaiah speak for me on this one. So let's look at um, Isaiah 40, 12 through 14. <clears throat> Who has measured 
the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in the measure and weighted the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him, who made God understand? Who taught God the path of justice and taught God knowledge and showed God the way of understanding? We cannot say with any confidence that God cares about one issue more than he cares for another. God didn't phone up anyone before deciding what mattered to him, and he certainly doesn't hold one of lesser value than the other. The political system is not capable of producing a solution to this imbalance. Proverbs 31, 8 through 10 tells us that we are responsible for speaking up for those who can't speak for themselves. When I read that verse for the first time, I was working for an ultra-conservative member of the Virginia House of Delegates um, who, by God's grace, is, it loves the Lord and, and serves that area well. Um, but that was the turning point for me because I began to look at some of my political ideology and, and realize, like, am I really speaking up for people who can't speak for themselves? That's unborn children Every bit as much as it's someone who can't afford to put a roof over their head or afford legal counsel to fight charges or systemic oppression. There is no equivocation with that verse. There's not an asterisk that you can go down to the bottom and go, oh, well, I'm off the hook for that one. It isn't there. What party or politician or government not only understands that, but perfectly walks in it? None. So don't tell me that a Christian must be one thing or another. That's the sort of foolishness that, <clears throat> that's the sort of foolishness reserved for those who put their hopes in government, whether it's more of it or less of it, and not to those who claim ultimate allegiance to God over Caesar. If you see in your party affiliation or your political leanings that there isn't a party that fits it, it doesn't mean you get to cast your vote and then hope for the best. If you are a Christian, you vote in hope that God will redeem that vote, redeem our system, and continue to work through our activity, but then you work towards reconciliation outside of your political party. You don't just go buy a chicken sandwich on a Thursday and say, well, I've done my good deed. That is not enough. And if you are a member of this church, if you are coming out to our community groups, if you are interested to grow in a knowledge of the Lord, my prayer for you is that you would know that if nothing else, you don't get an easy choice at the ballot. I don't care who you vote for or what you vote for. You can be wrong, but you better understand that our call is not to make the right ballot choices. Our call is to redeem creation. Preach the gospel. Live the gospel. Use words and use deeds. And do not make yourself the conscience of another believer. Oh my God, I can't believe you support that candidate. Oh, I, I can't believe you voted for that amendment. Oh, I can't believe you don't care about the Supreme Court. Sorry, I sound like Kevin. So what do we do with all this brokenness? The third thing, you probably forgot the third point, didn't you? Uh, it was to press into the political sphere as a believer and pray for it. Let's look at 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, first of all. So, again, I'm going to jump out of the sermon for a second. If you tell someone you're going to pray for them and you don't, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing. Oh, wait, I skipped some. 
Yeah, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Paul says that we are to pray for our political leaders. That's tough. It can be very tough. We spend so much time being irritated or enraptured with our politicians that we forget that they are fallible men and women holding an office that God has meant to be used for our good, and they will not use it perfectly for our good, no matter who they are. Regardless of whether you're a registered Republican or a Democrat this morning, how much time have you spent praying for the men and women who are, uh, who, um, are on the ballot? How much time have you spent praying for President Obama and his cabinet? Is it as much time as you spent yelling about them? or making fun of them, or making fun of people who support them. The governments and authorities God had placed over us are not perfect. They are broken, and the people who are in them are broken. But if you really want to see God's will played out on earth, just as we want it in heaven, then we should pray that our leaders be wise, safe, and ultimately saved. Prayer is important for Christians for so many reasons. Not only does it humble us before our God, but it also helps to align our hearts to his will. If we are seeking the Lord's guidance for one another and for our leaders, it's hard to imagine a world where we shout one another down as Peter warns us not to do or insist on a strict party allegiance as the Pharisees tried to do to Jesus. We are fallen people in a fallen world, but God has called us to himself and sent us into the world to act as lights. If that is foremost in our minds, then we will not cast our vote. Sorry, if that's foremost in our minds, then we'll cast our vote, praying humbly that God will be glorified regardless of the outcome, not because of how we voted. Above all, final thoughts. Above all, I want to exhort you to remember this election season that um, our primary allegiance is not to the United States. Yes, be patriotic. Yes, love your country. Yes, thank God that you live here and not somewhere else. I I jokingly, with a friend one day, was like, oh, well, if so-and-so wins the nomination or if so-and-so wins the White House, I'll move. And so we start looking at other places to go and live. Guys, the world is tough. The U.S. is pretty sweet. Like, I'm just throwing that out there. Um, But our primary allegiance is not to the United States. It is not to the Constitution, and it is not to political parties. We are dual citizens who are primarily children of God, and so our primary allegiance is to the throne of Jesus Christ. Jesus in his high priestly prayer says this in John seventeen sixteen through 18. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Guys, the scriptures must inform your politics. They must inform your worldview. That is Christ's prayer for us, that we be sanctified in truth. Jesus didn't die so you could place your hope in political institutions, but rather so that you could be sanctified in the truth that is his word, which you are being washed in so that you may present it to God as holy and blameless. Don't lose sight of that because of politics. Instead, let it inform the way you conduct yourself through this election season and elsewhere. Um, so uh, I'm going to pray. We're going to do communion as we do every week. A uh, slight hiccup with um, communion. If, if you are um, gluten-free for whatever reason, we ran out of the gluten bits, and I didn't know that. So um, you can, like, pretend, or you can sit there and pray, and then people who are convicted and don't want to get communion because they're in sin or whatever, they can just pretend like they're gluten-free and not be embarrassed. Um, uh, we are a safe space, so just pray. Um, but don't touch the bread because I don't want you to die. All right, so um, I'm going to pray as the band comes up, and then we'll, uh, we'll do communion and go home. Um, and thank you for listening to me for an hour. <clears throat> Father God, this is your church. This is your body. This is your hands, your feet. I pray that um, 
that our church, our local church, would not be the same as the world around us, that we would engage our culture, that we would be fiercely active for the causes that your word espouses, that, that we would have compassion for all forms of life, all stages of life, that we would view politics as a tool you have given us by the grace of putting us here in this nation to, to vote, to be activists, to campaign um, silently and on the forefront, God. I pray that um, the, the folks, the hearts and minds who are here today would take home this idea that your word must be the compass of our lives, that Christ is preeminent above all things. Forgive us when we fail to do that, God. Forgive us when our anxiety leads our hearts astray. Thank you for lovingly calling us back to yourself. And, and Father, I just pray that, that you would work through us as Christians to bring change and hope, um, genuine change, genuine hope to the lives of our family, our friends, our neighbors, um, as we engage culture for Christ uh, above all else. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.